All right, how many of you attended the Lemoore Christmas Parade last night? Let's see a show of hands. I counted you last service. Two of you. That's a, uh, that's a 300% improvement over first service, by the way. So uh, I was there every year. I have the honor of uh, dressing in my chaplain outfit and guarding the Christmas tree at Fox and D. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge responsibility. I don't know who did it before I did because it's, you know, it's just it's such an honor. And uh, towards the end of the evening, you get up into the, about the 75th entry. Uh, I'm trying to do crazy things with the entry, like split the band in half and have half of them go around one way and half the other. And it's just, you know, just crazy fun, wicked cold, but uh, it's fun. And uh, you should go. You know, this is why we live in small town America, so that you can go to the Lamore. How many of you went to the Hanford Christmas Parade? Raise your hand. Who goes to these things then? I mean, I saw people there. Where are they from? Are they out of towners? Are they, is this, I mean, none of our local people go to anything, and, and yet it was packed. So uh, anyway, that was fun. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. So if you would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're faced with a little section there, verses 18 through 23, which don't belong to what's before it or after it, but is full and rich uh, with its own meaning, as I hope we'll see this morning. And so we want to pause and take a really good look at those verses. The topic we'll see is that on his return trip to Antioch, the Apostle Paul completes a controversial vow by cutting his hair. Therefore, the title of our message, Hair Do's and Don'ts. Thank you. Anyway, so, uh, by the way, I was 15 minutes into things before I got the first laugh for service. I just, you know, just, man, first service is a tough crowd, you know. Acts 18, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Chentria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing." And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray together. Father, the people that have gathered here this morning, we all desire to hear from you. We love your word, and we find it to be rich and full with pictures of you, with... um, impressions of you and your love for us, and I pray that this morning's text would be no different, and we would learn something about your love for us and our love for one another, how to express it so that individuals, Lord, are encouraged in our church and so that our church is reaching out to the non-believers outside of its walls. We require the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this place because there's nothing in our natural mind or from our natural abilities that we can offer you that would really make a difference. We need that which pierces to the dividing of the 
soul and the spirit in the deepest part of us, Lord, and only your spirit can accomplish that. And so we ask that he would have his way here this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Juan Domingo is a Calvary Chapel pastor currently ministering in Ensenada. He's a Southern California native who in 1978 answered God's call to plant churches throughout Mexico, starting in Mexico City. I remember him sharing at a pastor conference in the early 1980s that he was planning to forfeit his American citizenship and become a full-fledged Mexican citizen. At the time, he felt that it would demonstrate his sincerity to reach out to the Mexican people. Now, it sounds strange and extreme to us, but it's the kind of thinking that motivated the Apostle Paul when he was on the mission field. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul explained his philosophy of outreach. He said the following, it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's verses 19 through 23, I'll read it to you. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. We're going to see that Paul's hairdo in Chantria is an example of this philosophy of outreach. To the Jews, he became as a Jew by taking a vow according to the Old Testament law. God will probably never call upon us to forfeit our citizenship. But if we are serious about reaching people, there will be times we need to become all things to all men. It could involve something as simple as a hair do or a hair don't. We should remain open to the Lord's leading. Among believers, we should be willing to subordinate some of our rights and liberties in order to strengthen and encourage them. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your outreach is extended when you become all things to non-believers. And number two, your in-reach is extended when you become all things among believers. Let's take a look first of all in verses 18 through 21 where your outreach is extended when you become all things to non-believers. Our approach to these verses is suggested by the brief but significant information in verse 18 that the Apostle Paul had taken a vow and gotten a haircut. There is no further explanation because none would be necessary. Anyone familiar with the Bible knows that Paul must have taken a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is presented in the sixth chapter of the Old Testament book, Numbers. The English word Nazarite transliterates the Hebrew nazir, meaning set apart. You made a voluntary vow to God to express your special desire to draw close to God and to set yourself apart from the comforts and pleasures of this world. During the time of your vow, you observed the following prohibitions. Number one, you were forbidden to eat or drink anything associated with the grapevine. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. Maybe you don't even drink Welch's grape juice, but if you're an oil and vinegar fan, it's hitting a little bit closer to home. If you're an Italian, this is devastating. (laughs) But you have to remember also in their day, well, nobody in Selma could exist because raisins were out. 
Uh, and, and so you have to understand in their day, you had water to drink, and then often the only other real beverage was grape juice or fermented grape juice. And the water wasn't very good. It wasn't any better than it is today in the third world. Paul later on in one of the pastoral epistles would tell uh, his disciple Timothy, hey, if you're having stomach trouble, it's probably because you're drinking the water there. So take a little wine for your stomach. And so this really actually is quite a prohibition uh, back in Bible times. Secondly, this is another laugher for us, you could not go near a dead body Uh, And so unless you're a coroner, you probably don't care too much about this, except that in their culture, you couldn't even go to a funeral. You couldn't be anywhere near death, couldn't be in a building where somebody had died. I mean, it was, was, you know, you were just apart from all of that. And so if you had taken a Nazarite vow for a period of, let's say, four or five months, and uh, your wife or your husband or your mother or father or uh, even a child died, you couldn't go near that dead body because of your vow. And third, you let your hair grow throughout the period of the vow. At the end of the period of time you set for the vow, your hair was cut and the clippings were burned along with an offering at the temple in Jerusalem. Again, not too horrible in our society except that the rabbis added to this the prohibition that you couldn't comb your hair because when you comb or brush your hair, what happens? Hair comes out. And so you'd be pretty wild looking. Think of yourself this morning with the bedhead that you had. And then imagine that you'd taken a six-month Nazarite vow, couldn't cut your hair. Uh, You'd be gnarly looking. You'd be in a bad mood because you couldn't eat oil and vinegar. And uh, I mean, you'd be be a Nazarite. And so uh, as I said, a Nazarite vow lasted a certain period of time. It had to last a minimum of 30 days but it could last longer. Samson and Samuel were dedicated as Nazarites from birth by their parents. In the New Testament, John the Baptist was a lifelong Nazarite. Thanks a lot, mom and dad. You know, when your kids start to grow and they ask questions, you know, and here's John the Baptist with this wild, gnarly hair. Mommy, what's wrong with my hair? You're a Nazarite. I mean, this guy was wild looking. I, I don't think I've ever seen a really good depiction of John the Baptist. Uh, I, mean, have you, I mean, there's a lot of movies. I think they're afraid to show you what John the Baptist would look like because people think no one would listen to that guy. I mean, can you imagine a guy wearing, you know, these weird outfits, chewing on a locust, dipping it in honey with hair just everywhere, telling people to repent? I mean, maybe you'd want to repent after seeing that, but... <laughs> And so uh, that's the deal with the Nazarite vow. By the way, the term is not to be confused with Nazarene, a name of Jesus because he grew up in the city of Nazareth. It has nothing to do with one another. And so in verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while, and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Chentria, for he had taken a vow. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth before moving on, Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple who had employed Paul in their tent-making business in Corinth. They traveled with Paul as far as Ephesus, and then it appears that they stayed behind to sow seeds of the gospel that Paul would water and harvest on his return visit there. Verse 19 says, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 
left them there indicates that Aquila and Priscilla were moving to Ephesus as part of a plan that they had come up with with the Apostle Paul to reach that city for the Lord. They would establish another tent-making business, but their real passion was for winning souls. Just about every week, we point out that Paul's strategy was to go to the local synagogues and show the Jews gathered there how that Jesus was the promised and prophesied Messiah of Israel and Savior of the world. It was a great audience because they already believed in the authority of Scripture, and so Paul could teach right out of their own Scriptures and point out to them how that Jesus was the fulfillment. He could read from Psalm 22, read from Isaiah 53, read from Genesis 22, read from just about anywhere in the Old Testament and show them the types and the analogies and the metaphors and the illustrations of Jesus Christ uh, who had recently been crucified and risen from the dead. And, And so it was a great way to minister. One note, a lot of the people that we might share with in our modern day culture just don't know anything about the Bible at all. Uh, There's a tendency to think that people have a common background, and uh, it might have been true a few decades ago. There might have been more of a common uh, Judeo-Christian base in our nation, but a lot of uh, people today don't really know anything about the Bible, or what they know about it is completely negative. And so uh, we should alter our message a little bit, not the essentials of the gospel, but, uh, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in the the Bible, it's hard to use the Bible as your authority until you establish that. And so just bear that in mind. Sometimes we talk to people as if they were already Christians, and they're not really hearing us because they don't have a frame of reference. Uh, And so uh, there are many other ways that we can share the Lord. In verse 20, it says, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. Paul's plan was to attend one of the annual feasts in Jerusalem. Uh, Scholars who keep track of his movements and seasons and all say that it was probably Passover or Pentecost. Uh, A Jewish man was required to attend one of these annual feasts uh, each year, and so Jerusalem was always packed with Jews from all over the Roman Empire, and so this would be an evangelist's dream. Paul was willing to go anywhere at any time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, but if he could be in Jerusalem around the time of Passover and Pentecost, everybody would come to him. He would have an audience of uh, several hundred thousand people potentially that he could share with, and so he was anxious to get to Jerusalem at least for that reason, if for nothing else. Now, the folks in Ephesus had a perceived need for Paul to stay and teach them, but he had a leading to leave. Of course, you would want Paul the Apostle to stay and teach if he was coming through your town. Uh, But he said he had to leave. And this reminds us that perceived need doesn't always determine God's leading. As we'll see later in chapter 18, God had Ephesus covered for the time being. And so we are to be led by the Spirit of God. Uh, It isn't that we ignore needs. It's that sometimes there's a perceived need that isn't really what God is leading. And so we need to discover through prayer and Bible study what the Lord really has for us. Now, this vow of the Apostle Paul's has caused quite a stir among Bible scholars and commentators and Bible teachers for decades and maybe centuries. 
Some don't want to admit that Paul was taking a full-fledged Nazarite vow. To them, it seems a step backward into Judaism, into legalism. They suggest that it was some other kind of vow that involved cutting your hair, although there aren't any other vows like that, or that it was a modified Nazarite vow that Paul uh, grew his hair out long and cut it off, but that he didn't follow through with the sacrifice and burning his hair in Jerusalem. Or some even creatively try to suggest that it was Aquila who made the vow and not Paul. Now, the confusion, I think, is resolved by Paul's own commentary, the verses that we read from 1 Corinthians about becoming all things to all men in order to reach them for Jesus Christ. Without ever compromising his morals or his message, Paul was willing to change his methods in order to reach Jews or to reach Gentiles. Among Jews, he acted like a Jew. Among Gentiles, he acted like a Gentile. Earlier in Acts, we saw that when Paul invited Timothy to accompany him on a mission that would take them to predominantly Jewish territory, he had Timothy circumcised because Timothy would offend the Jews. He was half Jew and half Gentile, and the Jews would expect him to be circumcised. And if they brought an uncircumcised man along, Paul would have no entry into the synagogue and therefore no ministry. And so even though Timothy did not need to be circumcised to be saved or to fulfill any biblical requirement, he was circumcised so that he could reach uh, those. And that's a, you know, that was really Timothy's first missionary lesson was this lesson. Paul said, Timothy, I've got got something I want to say to you. Uh, As a missionary, Uh, We adopt the philosophy that we are to be all things to all men, and I'm sure Timothy assented to that. To the Jews, we become a Jew, and to the Gentiles, a Gentile, okay? Well, Timothy, uh, I've got some news for you. That means you're going to have to be circumcised before we can take off. And uh, no one wanted to be circumcised as an adult, uh, but Timothy submitted to that, and then they went off and had a very successful mission. Later on in Acts 21, we'll see Paul participate in a Jewish purification ceremony with four other Jewish Christians. And he didn't see any of this as compromising what he believed about Jesus Christ. Paul was willing to act himself as if he were under the law of God when he worked among non-believing Jews. When he was among Gentiles, he did not observe Jewish rites and rituals. He ate whatever food was offered to him. If, if he went to a Gentile house and they were, you know, having a, a club sandwich with bacon, Paul would chow down on that thing. He wouldn't say, look, you're offending me because I was born a Jew and I can't eat bacon. He wouldn't slip the bacon out of the sandwich. Well, oh, look at that, and take it out and give it to the dogs that were hanging around the table. I mean, he would just eat the bacon because it, whether you eat bacon or not eat bacon meant nothing to Paul. Uh, because he was free from the law, and and maybe he didn't even like bacon, but uh, he thought, hey, why offend my Gentile hosts? I want to reach them with the gospel, and so he dressed like a Gentile, and he acted like a Gentile to the point at which it would compromise his morals uh, or his message. When asked to explain himself in the, because I'm sure that people You know, if if Paul was in a modern church, he would be offensive to Christians. They would say, hey, we heard that you ate, you know, food over here, or we heard that you did this over here. And Paul would say, hey, I'm all things to all men in order to win some. 
And he was serious about that. He was winning souls to Christ. He wasn't just out, oh, yeah, I want to do that, so I'll act like I'm doing it for the gospel. No, he said, hey, I, you know, it's kind of even distasteful in a way, but what's the big deal if I have to eat bacon or if I have to take a Nazarite vow, look at the open door of ministry that that's given me to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, most of us will probably not be called upon to take such radical steps and so we can wipe our foreheads. I mean, if you, you know, this isn't building up to losing our citizenship or anything like that. We are already among the people God wants us to reach, and for the most part, we share their customs and habits. Uh, I mean, you know, everybody is, is you know, we're, we're pretty similar here in this room and in, in our culture generally. There's some subcultures, some subgroups we'll talk about, but, uh, you know, th- there aren't a whole bunch of different people that are just really dressed strange or acting weird here this morning. We don't have a separate cafe for people who, you know, can't be in our cafe. I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty much, you know, uh, similar with one another. But still, instead of thinking that we should all be just like one another, we should encourage diversity for the sake of reaching out to everyone who needs to hear about Jesus. And we should pray both individually and corporately, asking the Lord to show us if there are areas in our lives that we could adapt in order to be relevant, in order to reach out to non-believers. I know sometimes, and I, I, this is not true of our church because we're, you know, we're the number one church, uh, but I know sometimes Christians can get narrow-minded. Have you ever experienced that among other Christians? Certainly not anyone here, but, but uh, Christians have a tendency to grow narrow-minded. Now, when it comes to the gospel, we are on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He isn't one way or a way. He is the way. We don't give up any ground on that path. But outside of that, I know a lot of times Christians think other people ought to look just like them and act just like them, smell just like them, eat the food they eat, drive the cars they drive, do everything that they do. That they either should or shouldn't have tattoos, they either should or shouldn't have body piercings, they either should or shouldn't have long hair, and the list, I mean, there's an endless list of things that Christians have come up with over the years that make us more or less spiritual in the eyes of certain people. Now, the the litmus test, the, the real acid test of this, are you doing this, whatever it is, whatever kind of odd or unusual dress or style, are you doing it just to be weird or are you really concerned about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I've known people over the years who just want to be weird. They do all kinds of weird things uh, and, and they're not really doing it to, to fit in with some group of people that otherwise wouldn't hear the gospel. Uh, and so everybody has to answer this question for themselves. I don't know if I'm being, or I don't know if you're being weird or, or if you're really reaching out. But in the realm, I, I think we just need to rise up to the realm of, hey, there are people who need to hear about Jesus who are different than we are or than we've become. And uh, we need to reach them. And some of the people who are called to reach them are going to have to be a little bit like them without compromising their morals or the message. Uh, and so I think we need uh, that kind of tolerance. Sad thing about the church, we don't tolerate those uh, things, and we do tolerate false doctrines all the time. 
I'm always getting slammed for saying things about people that I shouldn't say who are absolute false teaching heretics. Uh, and, and so we need to get that right. Doctrine, narrow, narrow, narrow. I mean, just, uh, just like a laser point when it comes to doctrine, that narrow path. Everything else in terms of leading people to Christ, let's go for it and do it as the Lord leads. Paul said in the Corinthian passage that he had made himself a servant to all in order to win some of them. The word he used for servant was to enslave. He voluntarily enslaved himself to non-believers he was among in order to reach out to them, how can we do any less? Now, this basic all things to all men idea is also at work when we are among believers. In verses 22 and 23, we'll see that your in-reach is extended when you become all things among believers. The two verses closing out this small section track Paul's movements. There isn't a lot in them other than that, except that they focus our attention back on Paul's activities among believers. His passion in the church was to build up believers in their faith and equip them for reaching out. And so it says in verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Gone up and went down are travel milestones that tell us Paul visited Jerusalem. Since Jerusalem is at an elevation, that was how it was always described. You ascended to it and you descended from it. Finished with the feast he wanted to attend, Paul returned to Antioch. That was his home church, his sending church. Then he systematically visited churches in the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Strengthening all the disciples is a summary of the many things Paul did among them. He would certainly teach and preach and pray and disciple. It also neatly ties up our suggestion that this entire section corresponds to his comments about becoming all things to all men. When Paul described himself as becoming all things to all men, he mentioned three groups, Jews, Gentiles, and those who are weak. Now, the weak seems to refer to believers who are less mature than he was. It was Paul's practice to give up his liberties in Jesus Christ as a mature believer in order to not stumble weaker, less mature Christians. Thus, he could reach into them without offending them and thereby strengthening them. We, not, uh, we might not be called upon to adopt different lifestyles in order to reach out to non-believers, but we will be among lots of believers in the church. As we grow in the Lord and discover the freedoms we have in certain gray areas, we should subordinate ourselves to those who are weaker rather than stumble them. It's what Paul did, and I know that I am not as mature as the Apostle Paul, love trumps my liberty. I'm not saying that a Christian can't have liberty in certain uh, questionable areas. We just need to be careful expressing it around other Christians. Paul in one section of Scripture will say, if my liberty causes another believer to stumble, I'll have it in secret, in private, in a, in a basement if I have to, rather than flaunting it. And this is that area, those, those uh, colorful gray areas that the church talks about, has to do with smoking and drinking and going to the movies and watching television and how we, you know, all these other areas within the church that we argue about in terms of what makes us more or less spiritual. 
And we need to, as if we're mature Christians, we need to at least be aware of the fact that our behavior can stumble younger Christians. What does that mean? It means that I might be able to do something and it doesn't affect my walk with the Lord at all. I'm just as spiritual as I was before I did it. It's, not, it's a matter of faith and it's not a matter of sin. But if somebody else sees me doing it or God forbid if I encourage them to do it, and then they start doing it, and it's sin for them. It brings them into a bondage. It brings them down. Well, then Jesus said, I would have been better off if I had had a 100-pound millstone attached to me and thrown into the ocean. That's how serious that is. And so all Paul is saying is, out among the Jews and the Gentiles who don't believe, I'll do whatever I can up to a certain line that would cause me to compromise the message in order to be able to talk to them, in order to have a one-on-one conversation about Jesus Christ. When I'm in the church, I have all this wonderful freedom and liberty, and I exercise it, but I'm careful that I never exercise it in a way that would stumble a weaker Christian. Because after all, I want to strengthen them, and it doesn't always strengthen them to just tell them to go out and have liberty. Go ahead and do that. Oh, your conscience bothers you? Don't worry about that. You'll get over it. A lot of times they don't get over it. And so something that's okay for me or something that's okay for you doesn't translate. And you know, it doesn't have to do with how long you've been a Christian or how much you know. There are things that stumble me that Christians do that I can't be around. You know, it doesn't matter that I've been a Christian 30 years and I pastor a church. It has nothing to do with it. There's areas that I can't partake of because of my walk with the Lord. And so we just have to be careful. To some greater or lesser extent, each of us wants to honestly say, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Amen? Amen. I've reserved about five or 10 minutes here at the end so that we can just spend an additional time in worship. Uh, It's just something that's on my heart today. And so we're gonna do that right now. Uh, And so let's just worship the Lord and then we'll spend a couple of minutes uh, ending the service in uh, personal prayer, praying in these things that the Lord has shown us today or for anything that God has on your heart. So just set your heart towards the Lord, lift up your heart to Him either through the singing or uh, just in enjoying uh, being in the presence of other believers. (laughs) 